Well, good evening, everyone. As we uh, as we come into yet another one of these uh, remarkable studies in church history, uh, tonight is deep dive number six, and we find ourselves in the uh, in the wonderful uh, position of interacting with some of the oldest writings in the church's history. Tonight, we are going to be working on uh, the uh, a couple of the writings of a man named Ignatius. Now, if you have uh, dealt much in the history of the church on uh, any specific uh, instance, you will probably um, not be able to trace a whole lot of things back to the discussion of Ignatius, but uh, the discussions of things like martyrdom and things like church polity and uh, even of the Eucharist, these types of things um, all find their uh, find their uh, grounding or find at least their first parts of their history here in the writings and in the thought of Ignatius. So um, tonight we're going to be looking at two of the seven letters that he has. Uh, I know in the future we're going to come back and uh, look at some of his others, especially his uh, letter to the Romans, um, which is a really remarkable one. And um, and when we when we kind of settle down to understand. Um, what he is writing on and how he addresses these things. It's really quite fascinating uh, to look into the details. And tonight we're going to be spending some time in two of his letters. Uh, that is the letter to the Smyrnans or Smyrnaeans and uh, to his letter to Polycarp, who is the Bishop of Smyrna. Uh, these two letters uh, hand in hand deal with very similar things, but kind of from a different perspective, really helpful. And, um, I know there's there's a lot of places that will look at some of these things and discuss them, uh, you know, kind of as a third party or discuss them separate or removed from uh, what they are exactly. But actually, what I really want to do is I want to discuss them directly. I want us to actually walk through them in their entirety and um, pay attention to that. So um, one of the great things about the new way that we're doing this on the YouTube Live is to actually be able to have the PowerPoint up and so I can actually have the text of this um, clarified there. Now, if you are listening by way of podcast, which the vast majority of you are, um, I will put the links to the translation that I am using uh, in in today's episode into the description uh, and those will be at earlychristianwritings.com and uh, so you'll be able to follow along we're using Roberts Donaldson's translations um, and we're taking the assumption that the uh, the shorter renditions that we have are the accurate ones which is pretty much the main consensus in scholarship uh, anymore um, is that the the shorter of the two renditions that we have uh, is is the most accurate? So we are going to go with that, and uh, we're going to dive into these. But before we do, I want to give you a little bit of history. Uh, I'm going to assume you don't know anything about Ignatius or um, or what was going on, or even where exactly we are. So if you can see the uh, if you can see the title frame here, Ignatius of Antioch, approximately born the year 30 or 35, depending on what source you pay attention to, uh, AD, and then died 107 AD or 110 or 116. Uh, so I'm going to go with the dates 30 to 107. 
those would be the more traditional dates, uh, at least as far as history is concerned. And uh, I usually find those ones, while there's reasons at times to wonder, uh, usually they get they get uh, defended fairly well as we go on in history. So let's talk about this. Who was Ignatius? Ignatius of Antioch was a bishop. Um, we're, we'll talk a little bit about church polity in the first and second century, um, but he was the bishop of Antioch. Now, a bishop is not the exact same thing as an elder. He would be an elder of the church, but a bishop specifically was given responsibility over a city and the churches in it were pretty much under his, uh, under his watch care. So this is something that goes back to the very first century of the church. It seemed uh, that we have references to this in the New Testament even, um, not necessarily structured around the concept of a city, but that does come so early on in church history that it is doubtful that it wouldn't be a design by the apostles themselves, um, because we see that that kind of structure crops up that very generation. Kind of like, for instance, um, while... Uh, while elders were uh, a natural outflow of the apostles, uh, the the office of deacon was one that was risen up out of necessity. Uh, it is possible that the position of bishop was as well. Um, it is also possible that the the apostles uh, structured this um, because it certainly existed while they were still alive. It it is possible that they structured this, and we don't actually know because it's not recorded in scripture, uh, the exact reasons why they did that, um, how exactly that works and how exactly it was, or whether it was just a natural aspect of the eldership that we see in the New Testament. Either way, when we come out of the first century, we already have it, is that there would be, for instance, for Jerusalem, there would be a bishop there. Uh, that was James, by the way, the Lord's brother. Uh, in Antioch, uh, you have... Uh, several of the apostles founding the church there, Peter being a, a pretty uh, major role there. Paul did deal with Antioch some as well. Uh, and then they set up um, uh, they set up the first bishop there. Um, oh goodness, I'm having to pull this off the top of my head. I believe his name was uh, Evodius. And then after him was Ignatius. So the, the role of bishop we're going to actually see come up in Ignatius's writings quite a bit. Um, and it seems so well established already at this point in history, which is why we pushed the date of that back so early, um, even, even crossing over into the lives of the apostles. Um, you can, by the way, pull this from Ignatius. He knew the apostle John personally. And so this is how early on in church history we're talking here. This is not, you know, way after. This is not centuries in. This is nothing like this. We are talking about um, we are so early in that there is actually uh, there is actually a story about Ignatius, which is most likely not true, but it just kind of shows you how early we're talking that the little child in Matthew 18 that sat on Jesus's knee was Ignatius as a child. Um, now I'm not saying that was him. I'm just saying that actually does match up the timeline, um, which is just fascinating. Uh, we, we have, uh, we have someone like the Bishop of, uh, Antioch who knows the apostle John, um, who knew the apostles, uh, back before they were, um, before they were dying. 
and in some accounts actually had run into Jesus during his earthly ministry when Ignatius was a child. Now, by all accounts, again, if you can do the math on this, uh, you remember how old he was here, about mid-70s, which, you know, he's well advanced along in years and has has uh, continued to work uh, side by side with the apostles, the first bishops, the first elders, they're in Antioch, the place that even the book of Acts says this is the first place where Christians were given that name. Now, Ignatius's personality shows through these writings. Uh, it's really fun to read. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in them. They, they are deceptively simple to read, but they are deep. They have a lot of stuff going on in them. Um, he is a huge fan of good theology uh, especially connecting the incarnation of Christ and uh, and seeing proper church order, uh, how worship is carried out, things like this. He is not a fan of heretics. Uh, anyone teaching heresy, he has uh, he has a massive distaste for, and uh, and will certainly pull no punches about the issue. He is the author of seven letters that we know of that have survived throughout history for us to read. And they are, uh, they are just a wonderful snapshot uh, into the mind of one of the first bishops of Antioch. Um, and those seven letters are uh, the epistle of Ignatius to the Trallians, to the Romans, to the Ephesians, to the Philadelphians, to the Magnesians, to the Smyrnaeans, and to Polycarp, the only one who uh, received a personal letter from him, uh, just one-on-one like that. Uh, Ignatius was arrested during the persecution of Trajan. Uh, again, uh, if, you, if you study the persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire, you know that there was not empire-wide persecution of Christians um, really until the end of the third century. You're not dealing with uh, empire-wide persecutions under people like Nero and Domitian and Trajan. You're dealing with localized, very specific instances and very limited time frames. With Trajan, Trajan worked his way up to uh, a certain rule for persecution of Christians. One, they should not be hunted down. And two, uh, they should be given chance to recant. They should be given chance to prove that they're not obstinate and stubborn and you know, only only this one way and so forth. Uh, but if they refused to recant, then yeah, they would be uh, worthy of death. There were issues that came up where the early church, and this is going to be an episode in the future, there were issues of the church um, having its pacifistic stance, uh, that they would not engage in warfare or in going to war or anything like this. And for a Roman society, that did not fly well in any way whatsoever. So what exactly led to the arrest of Ignatius? We don't really know. We know that uh, Trajan had been uh, working on understanding Christianity and trying to de- trying to understand its differences from the sect of Judaism, which they originally thought it was. Um, anyway, somehow it led to the arrest of Ignatius and he was sent to Rome to be martyred. Um, and it, it's, uh, it seems undoubtful that you have a, a great deal of sources that express that he was going there to be, and he even writes of it himself to be, um, to be killed by wild animals, most likely in the, uh, Coliseum as was told later, but we do not know exactly. 
Um, it is possible that the circus in, uh, in Rome was another place where that kind of stuff would happen as well. Um, but, uh, really hard to trace that kind of stuff out after the fact. Um, so the writer of, hold on, before we get to that, the writer of seven letters, let me kind of give you a quick rundown of each of these so that we can get the, uh, kind of the mindset of where he's coming from. And then we're going to work through the two letters that we're here for tonight. Okay, so the letter to the Trallians. Uh, uh, all of these, by the way, uh, Trallus and Ephesus and Philadelphia and Magnesia and Smyrna are all uh, uh, are all cities in Asia Minor, all near Ephesus and Miletus. That whole kind of uh, uh, the the western shore of Asia Minor, right? Polycarp is the bishop in Smyrna, so that applies there too. The the odd one out is the epistle to the Romans, which we'll discuss here in a second. But let's talk about the the epistle to the Trallians. Uh, really, what's dealt with in that epistle? Uh, I'll just give you kind of a a quick, you know, just like thirty second synopsis. Uh, it it addresses the issues of Jesus's real and true humanity. Uh, how Jesus truly suffered. It wasn't just the appearance of such things. He was truly crucified. He truly died, truly raised from the dead. You know, he, uh, Ignatius goes to great length to uh, pound that kind of stuff home. Uh, he then connects it to the hope of Christians. We too will one day uh, be truly raised from the dead because through Christ we, pres- we possess true life. Uh, so yeah, that's a really fascinating letter to walk through. We will do it at some point, but that's not for tonight. Uh, for the epistle to the Romans, we'll just take the the uh, oh the layout I have here on the screen. The epistle to the Romans. When when Ignatius was going to uh, Rome, when he was being transported there, that's when he wrote all seven of these letters. Uh, all at the same time, and the only one he is sending forward is the one to the Romans. Um, because there had been plotted an idea to make him escape from prison, uh, somehow to uh, enact his release or pull some strings. Uh, and people in Rome were attempting to do this. Christians in Rome were attempting to do this. Ignatius writes to the church in Rome ahead of time and begs the church in Rome not to attempt to have him released. He actually ex- addresses this as saying, that his suffering is being seen and used as his unity with Christ. It is a. It is not something that he is fearing. It is something that he is looking forward to. And so instead he asks them to pray. He asks the church in Rome to pray, not that he would be freed and that his suffering would be alleviated, but he asks them to pray that he would be strong in the face of trial. Uh, he goes to great lengths. And we will probably spend an entire episode someday uh, working through this epistle. He goes to great lengths to describe the the gift that martyrdom is, and um, it's a uh, it's it's just such a fascinating letter that is certainly owed its own evening. Then we will we will do that at some point. His epistle to the Ephesians uh, is really interesting because he refers to something that we don't know otherwise from history, and that is the name of the bishop of Ephesus. Uh, and that is a man named Onesimus, which if you are familiar with the New Testament, uh, you will know his name from the book of Philemon. And, um, and if it is indeed the same Onesimus, which is very likely as the timelines match up almost perfectly, um, Onesimus went from a slave, a runaway slave from Philemon's house to Bishop in Ephesus, uh, about 40 years later. 
Um, so that's a, that would be a very intriguing story if that is one and the same Onesimus from Philemon's house. Um, and, and the epistle to the Ephesians is, uh, is interesting to boot, but that would be one of the most notable things about, uh, his epistle to the Ephesians to the Philadelphians. Uh, there is an issue of a lack of unity in the local church. Now this is, this is almost across the board. What Ignatius is most concerned about, and that is unity, uh, unity of the Christian to Christ, unity of the Trinity, unity uh, inside the church, uh, unity amongst the leaders of the church. There, there's, there's always this push for this. Um, following those who are schismatic against the bishop is dangerous, uh, even to the point of demonstrating that one is not in the kingdom of God. He will actually say explicitly in his letter to the Philadelphians, uh, and the same goes for bad theology. So, uh, really, uh, uh, really playing it close to the chest in that, uh, in that epistle worth reading, worth checking out for sure. Uh, letter to the Magnesians, uh, again, unity of the church, submission to church leaders, heresy is bad. Um, and there were specific things going on in Magnesia that, uh, he is addressing with regards to those who are trying to live in accordance with the Jewish law. Uh, keeping kosher and things like this, he says, look, if, if you're going to be doing that, you're demonstrating that you, uh, have not received grace in any way. Um, also outside of scripture, it's the first reference I'm aware of, of the church, uh, intentionally meeting on Sundays as an observance of the Lord's day and resurrection of Christ. Um, so that's a, that's a fascinating thing to see there in that letter. Uh, and then we come to our last two, and those are the ones that we're going to spend tonight with. His letter to the Smyrnaeans and his letter to Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. You know, I could give you the introduction or we could just walk through it. Ah, let's just walk through it. Let's go through them. They're fascinating enough in themselves, and uh, they're not terribly long. And um, when you hear, if you're just listening to this, on the podcast, um, which I know uh, there's a lot and a lot, a lot of people that do uh, just listen to it. So I bear with me on this. I'm going to read them in their entirety. Uh, and so when I say, hey, I'm going to read chapter one, understand these are these are just like three ver- um, uh, three sentences long. These are just paragraphs. That's that's just how we've chopped all these things up. Uh, the letter to the Smyrnaeans uh, is, is like 12, 13 paragraphs long. Uh, the letter to Polycarp is like 10. Uh, it's not that long, um, and um, and the places that are of note, um, I'm going to be stopping and paying attention to as long along the way. So, um, if you've never read these, which that would put you in about the oh 99.9% of Christians, uh, you know, that are listening to this, then um, rather than just me supplying it to you, we're just going to read it. Um, let's go. The letter to the Smyrnaeans intro. Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus. Now I'm going to stop there. Theophorus means God-bearer, the one who's bearing God. In other words, uh, a nickname for Ignatius that seemed known throughout all of Asia Minor because he refers to himself as this multiple times. Um, Basically, a a name that would mean that it is apparent from interacting with him that he bears the one and true God. In other words, he's a consistent Christian. Uh, Fascinating nickname. All right, Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to the church of God the Father and of the beloved Jesus Christ, which has through mercy obtained every kind of gift. 
which is filled with faith and love and is deficient in no gift, most worthy of God and adorned with holiness, the church which is at Smyrna in Asia, which is abundance of happiness through the Immaculate Spirit and the Word of God. That is his introduction. Chapter 1. I glorify God, even Jesus Christ, who has given you such wisdom. For I have observed that you are uh, perfected in an immovable faith, as if you were nailed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in the flesh and in the spirit. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. You're going to hear many references uh, of Ignatius talking about the flesh and the spirit over and over and over and over again. Um, we are going to uh, address exactly why that is here um, in uh, in chapter 2, but um, just keep an ear out for it, right? Both in the flesh and in the spirit, and are established in love through the blood of Christ, being fully persuaded with respect to our Lord, that he was truly the seed of David according to the flesh, and the Son of God according to the will and power of God. Again, flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit constantly will be issues. Chapter 1 continued on. That he was truly born of a virgin, was baptized by John, in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him, and was truly, under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch, nailed to the cross for us in his flesh. Of this fruit we are by his divinely blessed passion, that we uh, that he might set up a standard for all ages through his resurrection to all his holy and faithful followers whether among jews or gentiles in the one body of his church end chapter one we're introduced to so many different uh, aspects here and a lot of what he is focusing on is is establishing the nature of christ's incarnation this is something that is really central to the thinking of ignatius as he is encouraging these churches especially the church in smyrna here he will make not only just references to the incarnation as as a doctrinal fact but he is going to use the incarnation to actually depict the life of the Christian. He's going to use the incarnation to depict the the reason for the Eucharist, the nature of our hope, the nature of our suffering, why it's meaningful. There's so many different things that are getting attached to this. So chapter one is focusing on that. It's establishing this. We are not talking about um, what will be shown to us in chapter two. Uh, what some of the earliest heresies were saying is that that Jesus wasn't really incarnate. He was God and he just merely appeared as a man. Let's see that come up because it comes up immediately afterwards in chapter 2. Ignatius says, Now he suffered all these things for our sakes, that we might be saved. And he suffered truly, even as also he truly raised up himself, not as certain unbelievers maintain that he only seemed to suffer, as they themselves only seem to be Christians. Now, I'm going to stop us there for a second. This this reference here is not an accidental reference. He is uh, quite uh, intentionally referring to this because there was <clears throat> many going around the church that were teaching what is now referred to as docetism. Uh, it comes from the Greek word dokain, which is here actually used. It means to seem. Uh, to seem. It was a heretical teaching known as docetism, uh, 
um, that uh, denied the the essence of the incarnation of Jesus being truly man. So they would say, yeah, indeed, he is the he is God himself. But as far as the flesh, he only appeared as this. Um, let me introduce docetism just a little bit because I I don't want to use terms like that and get lost on people. So um, here we have up on the screen uh, docetism. It is an early. Um, I'm going to say second century Christian heresy only because that's when the references to it directly start showing up, like here in the year 107. Um, but the, the, the earliest forms of that were already in the world when first John was written, uh, which is probably in the seventies, eighties. So we're not talking about something that came along very late at all. This is something that uh, when Christian theology and the enunciation about Jesus's incarnation entered into a Greek world, uh, this was one of the first reactions of the Greek world is that there is no way uh, God coming as one of us would just be one of us. Greek dualism would not allow an overlap of the spiritual and the physical in such a way. The physical was seen as bad and like evil. Um, uh, it was not seen as something that could be perfected in such a way. This is why resurrection was so abhorrent on the, uh, Mars Hill, uh, on the Areopagus when Paul was out there preaching about the reality of the resurrection and the coming resurrection of all in Greek dualism, that is not seen as a good thing that would actually be seen as a bad thing. And so, to understand the incarnation from a Greek perspective is to say that Jesus only appeared to be human, only, only seemed to be human, um, which led to a full-on denial of Jesus's actual suffering and death. And you can hear it in Ignatius's words here in here, where he, where Jesus truly suffered and he truly was born. He truly died and was truly risen from the dead. Ignatius is doing his best to uh, protect the church from this insidious teaching. As, as if it doesn't affect anything, what Ignatius is going to argue is that not only does it affect everything, it will actually destroy the gospel itself if we hold to it. And thus we must hold it in the, in the clutches of, of defined heresy. The rejection of docetism played a role in the creeds. You can actually see how Ignatius is talking about these things. It shows up in creeds later on. And um, that he is truly God and truly man, um, you know, and establishing him in history, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, raised, you know, ascended in, into the heavens, right? This, this kind of language the church will get used to saying, but here we're so early on, these are some of the first times it's ever written down in such a pattern like this. And docetism is the false teaching that it's rumping up against and later on the gnostics of course are going to be this is going to be used against this as well and marcionism and all sorts of other ones uh the presence of docetism again affected not only the doctrines of the incarnation but because of that it affected the way the eucharist is spoken of uh which is really fascinating and it's going to come up here tonight and we're going to address that so let's keep going Chapter three, Ignatius says, for I know that after his resurrection, also he was still possessed of flesh and I believe that he is so now. Now, let me stop there for a second. 
this expression of, and this is the first time in history again, we have a, a reference to the nature of Christ even after the ascension as still bearing truly human form. That we have, uh, not only after his resurrection was he possessed of flesh, right? Because, you know, we, we Jesus even depicts this. He even, he has his, um, he has his disciples be able to come up and analyze him. You can see, look at my hands, look at the wound in my side. This is not what a spirit has. I have flesh and bone, right? And when he ascended, there may be some thought about maybe he changed form again or this not. Ignatius is addressing this reality. He says, look, I believe that he still has the same form now. Let's continue on with chapter 3. When, for instance, he says, he came to those who were with Peter and he said to them, quote, lay hold and handle me and see that I am not an incorporeal spirit. And immediately they touched him and believed, being convinced both by his flesh and spirit. Again, those two always showing up in tandem. Ignatius says, for this cause also they despised death and were found its conquerors. And after his resurrection, he did eat and drink with them as being possessed of flesh, although spiritually he was united to the Father. Again, this, I, I think it's just fascinating to hear how Ignatius talks about these things because he's he's using terms that are so um, intertwined with the concepts that are wrapped up in the hypostatic union of the second person in his incarnation and yet that kind of language has not actually been written yet. And so here he is he is writing it more in expanded format. He's talking about the the things that we can just observe from the gospels. Jesus ate fish and and he drank with his disciples and yet spiritually God incarnate being united with the with the Father who is himself spirit and that somehow in the person of Christ we cannot leave behind the spirit lest we do violence to the deity of he who is incarnate, nor can we do violence to his humanity lest we take out the very effective nature of that for which he suffered. We are, we are 300 years away from Athanasius spelling these things out in this kind of format. And here we see an early bishop just talking about it in very expanded form, just because he is read, obviously, because he's quoting it, the Gospels of the New Testament. And in fact, Ignatius quotes from many of the books of the New Testament, um, a really interesting uh, study in and of itself. Uh, but oh, just so fascinating. Let's go to chapter four. I give you these instructions, beloved, assured that ye also hold the same opinions as I do. But I guard you beforehand from those beasts in the shape of men whom you must not only not receive, but if it be possible, not even meet with, only you must pray to God for them, if by any means they may be brought to repentance, which, however, will be very difficult. Yet Jesus Christ, who is our true life, has the power of effecting this. Unquote. Now, this is a fascinating paragraph here. Chapter 4 of his letter to the Smyrnaeans. Why? Because he speaks of the nature of repentance as something that Christ is able to affect in people. And here he is discussing false teachers. He is discussing heretics. That Christ actually has the ability, the power of affecting repentance in their life. 
And so here he says, look, as, as far as it is, until there is repentance of such false teaching, until there's repentance of heretics, you're not to be meeting with them if that's even possible, but pray for them, pray to God for them. Why? Because that may be one of the means that Christ brings them to repentance. He's not under any misgivings. This is a rare occurrence. Usually when somebody is a heretic or somebody has set their mind on false teaching, they usually run with it pretty far. And so he's not under any misgivings about this being a simple thing, but he's saying, not only can we not do this, you cannot actually fix somebody's heresy. You cannot fix their false teaching if they are obstinate and stubborn in it. Yet you can pray for them, and perhaps Christ Jesus will grant them repentance from wrong doctrine. Um, Which, by the way, I will just put in a side note, that's not a typical way that we talk about doctrine in the church. We'll usually, if we've come to a new thing or whatnot, we'll say, you know, hey, I, uh, um, I, I learned this new aspect of doctrine, or I've learned this new thing about the scriptures, or um, here I have seen this and therefore I've learned that. But very, I don't know that I've ever even heard somebody say they've repented of believing something wrong. That's a fascinating thing to think about. Uh, And I think a challenge for us, perhaps, to wrap in wrong doctrine into our confession. Uh, God, forgive us for believing things that are not true about you. Uh, Perhaps something and some wisdom to pull from this still. Chapter 4 continued. Ignatius says, but if these things were done by our Lord only in appearance. Again, here he's addressing docetism. Then am I also only in appearance bound Again, he's arrested. He's on his way to Rome. He's going to be put to death. He says, And why have I also surrendered myself to death, to fire, to the sword, to the wild beasts? But in fact, he who is near to the sword is near to God. He that is among the wild beasts is in the company with God, provided only he be so so in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, I undergo all these things, that I may suffer together with him, he who became a perfect man, inwardly strengthening me. I mean, throughout history, martyrs with count beyond number speak of Christ in almost the exact same way. And here we see Ignatius talking about the the reality of the presence of God, the presence of Christ himself, in the midst of these sufferings, especially as he is anticipating within very few weeks his own death by the by being consumed by wild beasts. It is it is a remarkable thing that he connects right theology with proper Christian living in suffering. This is something I speak on often because usually we think That doctrine, oh, it's just a matter of getting things right. It's not really a matter of practicality unless you make, you know, application to it. No, friends, good doctrine leads to proper piety. It does. Here he is expressing these things. 
If we have wrong doctrine about Christ, for instance, that his incarnation was only in an appearance of a man, but he wasn't actually one of us. If we have that wrong in our doctrine, we're not just wrong as far as systematic theology is concerned. We are wrong as far as being a Christian is concerned. And when suffering comes our way, that suffering really doesn't have a meaning to it. This is one of the things that Ignatius is saying here. If, if Christ's existence and suffering and death and life were only in appearance, then as Ignatius is saying here, then so is my boundedness. So is my suffering just as meaningless as a, as a uh, corporeal spirit that just appears to have suffered and died. If that death has never actually happened, then salvation has not occurred. Here he speaks of the reality is since it has, and since Christ truly did incarnate in this way, then now I, he says, may undergo all these things that I may suffer together with him, he who became a perfect man inwardly strengthening me. It is understanding that because Christ has passed through these things, there is a unique relationship that he has to Christians who suffer. And any Christian who has suffered knows that to be the case. Chapter 5. Some ignorantly deny him, or rather have been denied by him, being the advocates of death rather than of the truth. These persons neither have the prophets persuaded, nor the law of Moses, nor the gospel even to this day, nor the sufferings we have individually endured. For they think also the same thing regarding us. But what does anyone profit me if he, content, if he commends me? But blasphemes my Lord, not confessing that he was truly possessed of a body. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, if you didn't catch it, this one, uh, this one connection uh, reasoning that he places here. Um, for those of you who can see this on the screen, I have the, um, I have certain aspects of these things bolded and italicized and whatnot. But look at that second sentence there. These persons neither have the prophets persuaded, follow the logic, nor the law of Moses, nor the gospel even to this day, nor the sufferings that we have individually endured. What is he saying here? What, what do these four things have in common? The prophets, the law, the gospel, and our sufferings. <clears throat> All of them are part of the revelation of God. Now, let me, let, me, let me explain this for a second, right? When you speak of the Old Testament during the New Testament times, you use the uh, shorthand. Jesus used it all the time, the law and the prophets, yes? Here, Ignatius is doing the same thing. These persons neither have the prophets persuaded, nor the law of Moses. And then he also includes in the gospel, even to this day. <clears throat> that, would, that would include, that's basically shorthand for the entirety of the New Testament. Uh, the gospel told and the gospel explained is basically the New Testament, the, the, uh, the gospels and the epistles. And then he includes in the sufferings of Christians that they have individually endured. It is an interesting thing because he is quoting it as the fourfold proofs against these heretics who are teaching that Christ himself did not fully appear in the flesh. He just seemed to be here in the flesh, not actually. And he says, look, you're ignoring the scriptures, the law, the prophets, you're even ignoring the gospel, but then you're also ignoring the sufferings of individual Christians. 
He says because they think the same thing about us. Remarkable. Remarkable stuff. Chapter 6. Let no man deceive himself. Both the things which are in heaven and the glorious angels and the rulers, <clears throat> both visible and invisible, if they believe not in the blood of Christ, shall in consequence incur condemnation. And then he quotes again, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it, unquote. Ignatius says, let not high place puff anyone up. For that which is worth all is a faith and love to which nothing is to be preferred. But consider those who are of a different opinion with respect to the grace of Christ, which has come unto us, how opposed they are to the will of God. They have no regard for love, no care for the orphan, or the, excuse me, no care for the widow or, or the orphan, or the oppressed, of the bond, or of the free, of the hungry, or of the thirsty. In other words, faith and a lack of faith shows up in their actions everywhere. And their bad doctrine shows up in their lives. It just will show through. It's kind of one of these things. The invisible beliefs that we have show up in the visible actions that we have. Here, Ignatius is just drawing a one-to-one -one connection between that which is not visible in our lives and that which is visible. It is the faith leading to the works of the Christian life. Uh, really quite a fascinating thing here um, with this. Chapter 7. He says now, regarding these who believe wrong things about um, the incarnation of Christ, he says this, quote, They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. Those, therefore, who speak against this gift of God incur death in the midst of their disputes. But it were better for them to treat it with respect, that they also might rise again. It is fitting, therefore, that ye should keep aloof from such persons, not to speak of them, either in private or in public, but to give heed to the prophets, and above all, to the gospel, in which the passion of Christ has been revealed to us, and the resurrection has been fully proved. But avoid all divisions as the beginning of evils. Now, <clears throat> if you didn't catch it, his references here to the Eucharist and the nature of the Eucharist, uh, <clears throat> those that confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. He's saying that these docetists, uh, at least one of the types of groups that would do this, uh, abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer. Now, uh, his reference then also, he says the reason that they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer is because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, for those who uh, argue for the real presence of Christ's body, uh, you will almost certainly have heard this quote before because you're able to trace the origin of that teaching to this reference. Um, and also to uh, Jesus' reference that, you know, take, eat, this is my body. But as far as for outside of scripture, this would be one of, uh, not one of, this would be the first reference to such a thing. Uh, this idea of the Eucharist being the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, and with good reason do you quote this, right? Polycarp, um, excuse me, not Polycarp, what am I saying? Ignatius. Ignatius would have little issue with such a reference to the Eucharistic meal being the actual flesh of uh, and body of Christ. Um, 
But I will say this, a word of caution, and this is why we do not quote mine the, uh, the church fathers. Um, a word of caution, if you are going to apply this to a real presence argument uh, with regards to uh, the Eucharistic meal, I would encourage you to also go read his letter to the Trallians, uh, especially paragraph 8 or chapter 8. Uh, because in his letter to the Trallians, Ignatius also refers to the faith of the Christian as the flesh of Christ and Christian love as the blood of Christ, literally. So before you, you kind of get, you know, all up in the uh, I've finally proven everything category, um, realize that Ignatius writes in a way a little bit different than us and certainly has no issue expanding out the definition of certain things uh, to to fill in. Uh, the gaps, especially to drive uh, the the esoteric or even the <clears throat> the uh, more spiritual concepts, and to link them with physical concepts, right? So let me let me explain how he does this. So uh, here he's talking in chapter seven, right? That these people deny the 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 union of the spiritual and physical in the person of Christ and just say he appeared physical, but he just maintained spiritual. He says the effect of this in their life is that they don't pay attention to the physical sign that we have, that is the Eucharist. And then they also abstain from then by, uh, by distant effect from the spiritual. They actually abstain from both entirely, from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of the Savior. In other words, they deny his incarnation, and so they see no value in the Eucharist. Now, in his letter to the Trallians, he says something different. He's dealing with a different issue there, but he uses the same terminology, and he says that the faith of Christians is the body of Christ, is the actual, he actually uses the term the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, and their love between them is the blood of Christ. He'll actually use the two elements of the uh, of the Eucharistic meal, and and again bring together uh, the the more spiritual faith concept and the Christian love physical concept, and and show them to go hand in hand. You do not have Christian love without Christian faith, and real Christian faith does not not love other Christians. And so if you are going to come back here and argue, you know, and find legitimacy for your real presence concept here, you need to understand all of how Ignatius talks about this because it's not that cut and dry. And besides, as we're studying church history, remember, we are here gleaning wisdom. We're not here staking claims of legitimacy, uh, much as that is quite uh, tempting at times to do uh, for all of us, by the way. Um, and so really a fascinating reference there and something worthy of, of study for anyone fascinated by that. Chapter eight, see that you all follow the Bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the father and the presbytery as you would the apostles and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the Bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be. Even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. It is not lawful without the bishop either to baptize or to celebrate a love feast, 
But whatsoever he shall approve of, that is also pleasing to God, so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. Now, this is fascinating because the detailed expressions we have of church governance in 107 AD is really crazy. Uh, It is awesome to have this kind of reference because we see the whole structure laid out here. We have the bishop. Uh, who, again, as we discussed very early on in church history, you have a single leader over a city of house churches, essentially. Uh, And this looked different from city to city. In Jerusalem, it was much more uh, one huge group meeting in the temple uh, and also house churches and stuff. In Antioch, by every estimate that we have, it was a whole bunch of house churches, and then they would come together for things like baptisms and so forth. Um, and so here he, he spells out the three offices uh, that, that they express here. The bishop, the presbyters, which would be the elders of the church, and also the deacons. <clears throat> What's even more fascinating is the, is the uh, characterizations he makes. He says, see that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the father. Here, we are not talking about one who is in charge of the other. We are talking about roles played among equals. The bishop is not one who exercises some authority over uh, over the other as if there is an authority of value rather than just an authority of role. Uh, the father is not in charge of Christ Jesus because the father is worth more than Jesus Christ. No, that is their role. He is the eternal son. Uh, and his role is to do the will of his father. Uh, as far as for the relationship of the bishop to the church, it is not that the bishop is over the church in some way that he is somehow more by nature authoritative than them. No, it is his role to be held accountable for and to rule that church. Fascinating. So he says, See that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the father and the presbyteries. Right, so these would be the uh, the elders of the church. Uh, you follow them as you would the apostles. Again, apostles are also fellow elders. Uh, they are also uh, fellow Christians. But there is an authority there for which the presbyters are held responsible. And then also he says to reverence the deacons as being an institution of God. Now again, all of these are institutions of God. All of these are amongst. Uh, those who are all Christians, and yet the roles that are played and the the accountability that they are held to, this is a really interesting expression of church governance in the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Uh, very well established. Some had wondered how established it would be. The nice thing is we have Ignatius's references here himself, the Bishop of uh, Antioch explaining to us how they looked at this uh and as far as for studies of that really fascinating let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop right uh as far as eucharist as far as baptism so here we have the two ordinances of the church both references connected to the office of the bishop um you know that's amazing uh, i just it kind of just makes me smile to listen to it um you know the bishop can do it or one he has entrusted it to um, wherever the bishop shall appear there, let the multitude of the people also be. Uh, and he, he 
connects this with the first definition of the Catholic, here the word universal, church. Wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic, small c, church. For some reason I wrote it with a big C. The universal church is wherever Jesus Christ is. Let that sink in just a bit. Chapter 9. Moreover, it is in accordance with reason that we should return to soberness of conduct, and while yet we have opportunity, exercise repentance towards God. Again, life of repentance. This is this is the role of the Christian. This is what we do. It is well, uh, as he says, it is well to reverence both God and the bishop. He who honors the bishop has been honored by God. He who does anything without the knowledge of the bishop does in reality serve the devil. Now, this is really interesting because we don't have anything like this in scripture but it kind of just peels away the layers of history uh to understand the role of the bishop here uh the one who is uh given responsibility of these things he says let all things then abound to you through grace for you are worthy you're refreshed you've refreshed me in all things and jesus christ shall refresh you you have loved me when absent as well as when present. May God recompense you for whose sake, while ye endure all things, ye shall attain unto him. This reference here, it is well to reverence both God and the bishop. He who honors the bishop has been honored by God. He who does anything without the knowledge of the bishop does in reality serve the devil. This really does show us the centrality of this office early, early on in church history. Um, and certainly gives reason to... Uh, to consider even further uh, that when there is a bishop who is conducting things in accordance with the word of God, going against that, as far as Ignatius's reasoning is, is not to be on the side with the Lord. Let's keep going. Uh, chapter 10. He says, ye have done well in receiving Philo and Rius Agathopus, uh, uh, Agathopus, uh, as servants of Christ our God, who have followed me for the sake of God, and who give thanks to the Lord in your behalf, because ye have in every way refreshed them. None of these things shall be lost to you. May my spirit be for you and my bonds, which ye have not despised or even been ashamed of, nor shall Jesus Christ, our perfect hope, hope be ashamed of you. He says in chapter 11, now we're nearing the end of the first letter here. The second letter is much shorter. <clears throat> your prayers uh, have reached, uh, has reached to the, excuse me, your prayer has reached to the church, which is at Antioch in Syria. Now, so he's saying to this church in Smyrna uh, that the church from which I came um, uh, has received your prayers. Right. Uh, coming from that place, bound with chains, most acceptable to God. I salute you all. Uh, I, who am not worthy to be styled from thence, inasmuch as I am the least of them, nevertheless, according to the will of God, I have been thought worthy of this honor, not that I have any sense or having of having deserved it, but by the grace of God, which I wish may be perfectly given to me, that through your prayers I may attain to God, in order, therefore, that your work may be complete, both on earth and in heaven, it is fitting that for the honor of God your church should elect some worthy delegate. Now, here uh, he is... He is referencing uh, this this same uh, bringing together of earth and heaven uh, that there is uh, there is reason for 
uh, certain involvement between Smyrna and Antioch um, and, and a delegacy to be going between them. Uh, so that he, journeying into Syria, may congratulate them that they are now at peace and are restored to their proper greatness and that their proper constitution has been reestablished among them. It seems then to me a becoming thing that you should send someone of your number with an epistle so that in company with them he may rejoice over the tranquility which, according to the will of God, they have obtained and because that, through your prayers, they have now reached the harbor as persons who are perfect ye should also aim at those things which are perfect. I, I read that whole chapter just for that quote. Uh, for when ye are desirous to do well, God is also ready to assist you. I love that quote. As persons who are perfect, ye should also aim at those things which are perfect. Uh, what a tremendous way to talk about the Christian position and focus. Uh, we are already perfect in Christ, and yet we aim at those things which are perfect in our actions. Um, oh, Ken, you ask a question. How does one become a bishop? Oh, yes. Um, so this is where we enter the contentious world of, of the theory of succession. Um, let's talk about the first bishops, right? Uh, the first bishops were installed by the apostles. Uh, the apostles installed by all counts uh, the first bishops of the church. Uh, it does not look like it is something that came after them. Now, whether that was a practical decision done by the apostles, or whether that is something that we can see is just a natural outflow of the eldership of the church, the presbyters, um, that is a much harder thing to delineate uh, because we don't have it happening during the scriptures, at least as far as I can tell. Um, there may be inklings of it already with people like Titus and with Timothy, um, because while they are elders, they are also given responsibility to hand things down to faithful men that they teach others. So it, it seems that they have a, uh, a delegated over serial role, uh, like for Titus in Crete and for Timothy in Ephesus, um, how exactly that came about is is kind of in the in the uh, lesser known aspects of church history. But the thing is, is we know when it did. We just don't know exactly how it did. Um, there does seem to be rumblings of it from the very first get go uh, in Jerusalem, for instance. Uh, James is um, people say pastor. That's not really an accurate terminology for that at that point. He is the bishop of Jerusalem. Uh, it seems by any count. And we have that same format kind of going out into the world. Now, a lot of people will say, Hey, you know, you know, Peter, for instance, is the Bishop of Rome. Right. And so therefore legitimacy. Well, Peter was the Bishop of Antioch as much as he was the Bishop of Rome. So that, that led to some issues there because he helped establish both of those bishoprics. Uh, so you have a little bit of stuff to work out there. Um, and Peter was not a Bishop. He was an apostle. Uh, and that plays a whole different role. So how to become a bishop? <clears throat> One has to be ordained to that role. Uh, the first bishops were installed by the apostles, and the ones after them were put in place by other bishops. Uh, now, the argument goes that there's been unbroken lines of successive bishops, therefore there's legitimacy um, to whoever holds that office, or at least legitimacy of that office. Uh, that is more of a theological question, 
and something that's kind of hard to talk about with regards to scripture. Um, but the reality is, uh, there's a whole bunch of different views about that, um, about how one should still become a bishop. And that's before we made up all sorts of other uh, things in the church's history of cardinals and archdeacons and all sorts of stuff. So how one becomes a bishop, uh, well, it depends on what church you're in. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're in the Anglican world or if you're in the um, Catholic world or in the Eastern Catholic world or in the Eastern Orthodox world or Russian Orthodox world, it's different in each of them. Um, but all of them try to claim at least a successive role of bishops all the way back to the very beginning, which I think is um, a very, very impossible thing to claim historically. But usually the claim comes theologically before it is historical. Um, because historically, you're going to have a real, real rough time proving such things like that, because there's issues all along is, you know, if, if somebody is elected to that office that, uh, you know, proves to be an unbeliever by just rank craziness, is that person still a successor, you know, or, or through their disobedience and, you know, not being a Christian, um, because they believe heresies and, or live out heretical lifestyles, you know, is that, does that remove that bishopric from that person? So th those are much bigger questions as we go along. Uh, if you want to read more about it, um, I would encourage you to go look up uh, the Donatist controversy uh, that Augustine dealt with in North Africa in Carthage. Um, and just even just go read the Wikipedia article on it because it led to the discussion of um, of legitimate bishops and illegitimate bishops uh, based on her, uh, heretical uh, happenings. And then, you know, that connected to the, you know, things like baptism and so forth. So uh, go check that out if you're really, really interested in that um, because that's a much bigger discussion there, right? Uh, okay, good question. Okay, chapter 12, let's just finish this off. Uh, the love of the brethren at Troas salutes you. Whence also I write to the love of your brethren at Troas, uh, oh, excuse me, whoops, I had that doubled. The love of your brethren at Troas salutes you. Whence also I write to you by uh, Burrus, whom you sent with me together with the Ephesians, your brethren, and, uh, and who has in all things refreshed me, and I would that all may imitate him as being a pattern of a minister of God. Grace will reward him in all things. I salute your most worthy bishop and your very venerable presbytery and your deacons, my fellow servants, and all of you individually as well as generally in the name of the Jesus Christ and in his flesh and blood, in his passion and resurrection, both corporeal and spiritual, in union with God and you, grace, mercy, peace, and patience be with you forevermore. That's an amazing uh, list of things that are uh, informed by the incarnation, by that are informed by and and, uh, and describing and even depicting the nature of the spiritual and physical world uh, that is the Christian worldview, especially in the early second century. This is just remarkable to read. Um, what do we learn from all of that? From that whole letter, we learn of our unity with Christ, the unity of Christ. Uh, we learn that Jesus really and truly suffered, uh, <clears throat> also that he was really and truly resurrected, that uh, an incarnational understanding of life, of worship, of Eucharist, of uh, the Christian life, 
of why we do things, of the connection of faith and works. Uh, it's just really fascinating because as as Christ is both spiritual and physical, so is our faith, which is spiritual, and our works as physical uh, depictors of these things. Uh, the church is universal. There is one church in the world, and um, we are members of that, and that there is a certain aspect of polity that uh, is to be understood uh, in the life of the church. Um, and for some reason, my printer is printing. Let's keep going. The letter to Polycarp, a shorter letter indeed, um, but uh, one that would uh, owe our attention to as well. So let's spend our last 20, 25 minutes here. So the letter to the Smyrnans, <laughs> the letter to the Smyrnans, um, that's the church in Smyrna. And uh, I'm going to call them the Smyrnans because that's the easiest way for me to pronounce that. I know it's the Smyrnaeans, but please don't. Don't correct me on that. I don't want any comments about that. Uh, but their uh, their bishop is a man named Polycarp. And despite his name, it's not like he's a huge fan of fishing. Um, his, his role in the church as bishop leads to Ignatius actually writing to him uh, his only letter that we have surviving in history to a single individual. And so this is, uh, you got to understand, this is in the year 107, a bishop writing to another bishop. Okay? There is a very collegiate air about this. And even though Polycarp is about 35 years younger than uh, than Ignatius, um, Polycarp here is about 38 years old by all estimates. And uh, Ignatius is, again, in his mid-70s. So uh, two different generations of bishops, both of them holding the same office. That's the setting here, right? All right, let's read this. Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to Polycarp, bishop of the church of the Smyrnaeans, uh, or rather who has as his own bishop, God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, wishes abundance of happiness. Ignatius says to him, chapter 1, having obtained good proof that thy mind is fixed in God as upon an immovable rock. I loudly glorify his name that I have been thought worthy to behold thy blameless face, which may I ever enjoy in God. I entreat thee by the grace with which thou art clothed to press forward in thy course and to exhort all that they may be saved. Maintain thy position with all care, both in the flesh and spirit. Again, we have incarnational language. We have the structure here uh, expressing to them the nature of this. Uh, aspect of flesh and spirit being united. Uh, why is it we push forward with these things? Because the things done in the flesh matter. The spiritual aspects of our life show up in the physical aspects of our life. And also the physical things that we do affect our spiritual state as well. There is a unity of Christians in all of this that we cannot just look at one side and say we are spiritual beings and therefore the acts of the flesh don't matter. That kind of wrong thinking and wrong concept of the world was going around in the church in Corinth. And Paul was rebuking them for it. And again, Ignatius is reminding Polycarp that there's there's reason not only to not sin, but there's reason to continue to press on for the salvation of those who may hear. Chapter 1 continues. He says, have a regard to preserve unity. 
the then which nothing is uh, better. Bear with all, even as the Lord does with thee. Support all in love, as also thou doest. Give thyself to prayer without ceasing. Again, you, you can see Ignatius being very familiar with uh, the New Testament, what we would at this point call the New Testament. Implore additional understanding to what thou already hast. Be watchful, possessing a sleepless spirit. Speak to every man separately as God enables thee. Bear the infirmities of all as being a perfect athlete in the Christian life. Where the labor is great, the gain is all the more. Again, just amazing wisdom. I love the way he talks about this stuff. Um, Would I say things exactly like this? No. But I like the way he thinks. I like the way he argues this kind of stuff. Um, where the labor is great, the gain is all the more. Uh, bear with all, even as the Lord does with thee. Don't don't have a haughty look about yourself. Don't have pride about your life. Don't look at your maturity and go, my goodness, how wonderful am I? And then try to bear with everyone else. No, no, no. First start your bearing with other Christians in knowing that the Lord bears with you daily. Incredible stuff. I love it. Chapter 2. If thou lovest the good disciples, no thanks are due to thee on that account, but rather seek by meekness to subdue the more troublesome. Now I'm going to interject here. That's an interesting way to talk about this. That it is with meekness that you subdue the troublesome disciples. Anyone who's been in ministry any amount of time knows that some of your largest headaches are going to come at the hands of other church, uh, other Christians. Those who are troublesome disciples in the church, usually the temptation for the bishop, the temptation for the leaders of the church, however you call them, would be to exert an overabundance of strength, uh, out and out, and to fight it head on in the publicity of the church. That is always a temptation to do. And yet he reminds them here, he says, rather instead seek by meekness. Which is not the same as weakness, by the way. Meekness is, yes, indeed, have that overwhelming strength, but be able to use it properly. Don't don't be a reckless powerhouse of a church leader. Instead, be meek. Be powerful. Be strong. But have that under control. You know, a, a church leader or somebody who is uh, attempting to be a church leader that has outbursts of wrath and anger no, there's no meekness there. Outbursts of anger are a sure sign of unbelievable immaturity. As is all manner of troublesomeness of Christians amongst them, especially towards church leaders. If you're going to be troublesome there, what are you doing elsewise? What does he continue to say? He says, every kind of wound is not healed with the same plaster. In other words, different Christians need different things. Mitigate violent attacks of disease, for instance, by gentle application. Be in all things wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. For this purpose thou art composed of both flesh and spirit, for thou mayest deal tenderly with those evils that present themselves visibly before thee. Uh, it is it is a remarkable thing that he talks about these things. Even church disunity uh, and troublesome, meddlesome people in the church, he speaks of it from the perspective of the incarnation of Christ. Uh, really interesting as a central aspect of his theology. He says, and as respects, this is continuing chapter two, and as respects those who are not seen, pray that God would reveal them unto thee, in order that thou mayest be wanting in nothing, but mayest abound in every gift. 
The times call for thee as pilots do for the winds, and as on tossed and tempests uh, seeks for the havens, so that both thou and those under thy care may attain to God. Be sober as an athlete of God. The prize set before thee is immortality and eternal life, of which thou art also persuaded. In all things may my soul be for uh, be for th- uh, be forth, I think is this, and my bonds also, which thou hast love. I love that reference. Be sober as an athlete of God. The prize set before thee is immortality and eternal life. <clears throat> In other words, you are not going to make these things appear by exercising enormous power and influence. It is not through climbing the ladder of the church or any such thing. No, no, no. Let this kind of humility sit before you. Be sober. Work as unto the Lord. The prize that's set before you is eternal life. Don't try to define yourself only by what's here. Think quite incarnationally about these things. Think spiritual and physical knitted together. He says, let not those, this is chapter three, let not those who seem worthy of credit, but teach strange doctrines, fill thee with apprehension. Stand firm as does an anvil which is beaten. It is the part of a noble athlete to be wounded and yet to conquer. And especially we ought to bear all things for the sake of God that he may also bear with us. Again, go back to the beginning here. Let not those who seem worthy of credit but teach strange doctrines fill thee with apprehension. Stand firm as does an anvil which is beaten. Again, anyone who's been in church leadership for any amount of time and has actually stood their ground when wrong things are being uh, taught or when wrong actions are being carried out, knows what this feels like. And here he is reminding, this is, this is one church bishop reminding another church bishop uh, that is, he is much younger than him, yet you can hear him speaking to him as an equal. This is not lording things over. He's just reminding him that sometimes it's going to feel like the hammer is just beating you and beating you. And yet... Your job is to stand firm. You're an anvil. And he reminds them that it is the part of a noble athlete to be wounded and yet to still conquer. Why should we have to endure such things? Why do we have to endure such things? He says, especially, we ought to bear all things for the sake of God that he also may bear with us. Be ever becoming more zealous than what thou art. In other words, don't become stagnant. Don't just react to times of difficulty in your church as as uh, I'm going to become hardened. I'm going to become dissatisfied. I'm going to become brazen and frustrated. Stagnant. Angry. He says, no, 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 no. No. Wounded, yes, but still conquering. Right. Uh where you are, sure, but become more zealous, right? Bearing all the things for the sake of God, God is bearing them, bearing with us. Ignatius reminds him, he says, weigh carefully the times. Look for him who is above all time, eternal and invisible, yet who became visible for our sakes, impalpable and impassable, yet who became passable, meaning able to suffer, on our account, and who in every kind of way suffered for our sakes. This is an amazing sentence. Absolutely amazing. And for those who are out there who try to argue that all of these types of things just come from Greek thinking, look, Ignatius hates Greek thinking. 
just plain up. I'll just be straight up with you here. And yet he takes from it some of this language to explain the aspects of God and the eternal spirit. And yet the impassable God became passable on our account by, by welcoming on himself humanity and now in every kind of way suffered for our sakes. Therefore, why should we not expect that it would be our gift to suffer for his sake? Do not lose the context here. Ignatius is going to his death. He's in his mid-70s. He is going to be chewed on by lions to death. And he writes to a younger bishop who's in his upper 30s at this time, named Polycarp, and he is reminding him suffering is our responsibility. We should stand firm no matter what the source that kind of incarnational thinking will show up in all manner of areas of our lives. He says in chapter 4 here, Let not widows be neglected. Be thou after the Lord their protector and friend. Let nothing be done without thy consent, neither do thou anything without the approval of God. You see the, the understanding there. The church is to answer to you, you are to answer to God. God is taking responsibility for you. You take responsibility to those that God has given you role over. He says, which indeed uh, thou dost not inasmuch as thou uh, art steadfast. Let your assembling together be of a frequent occurrence. Again, this is referring to assembling together as a church. Seek after all by name. Do not despise either male or female slaves, yet neither let them be puffed up with conceit, but rather let them submit themselves the more for the glory of God, that they may obtain from God a better liberty. Let them not long to be set free from slavery at the public expense, that they be not found slaves to their own desires. An interesting way that slavery was being de dealt with in the early church. Encouraged that we look to the future promise of liberty in God, not, not to just simply say that that kind of liberty we must be in pursuit of here and now. Chapter 5. Flee evil arts, but all the more discourse in public regarding them. Speak to my sisters that they love the Lord and be satisfied with their husbands, both in the flesh and spirit. Again, those two come together. In like manner also exhort my brethren in the name of Jesus Christ that they love their wives even as the Lord the church. Again, familiarity with the uh, New Testament writings. If any one can continue in a state of purity to the honor of him who is the Lord of the flesh, let him so remain without boasting. In other words, if, if you are able to remain in purity single um, without sexual immorality, then do so but without boasting. Again, what does he say? Ignatius says, if he begins to boast, he is undone. And if he reckons, uh, if he reckon himself greater than the bishop, he is ruined. But it becomes both men and women who marry to form their union with the approval of the bishop that their marriage may be according to God and not after their own lust. Let all things be done to the honor of God. This is the first reference we have to marriages being performed by church leaders like this. It is so early on. Notice we don't have anything like that in the New Testament. We don't have any example of people being married as Christians 
and and like the apostles overseeing that or performing that or whatnot. This is the earliest reference we have to that. Uh, let it be done, as he says, with the approval of the bishop, that their marriage may be according to God and not after their own lust. Fascinating. Just fascinating. It, it's the idea of that you have two Christians that are looking to come together to be married. And he's saying, let's ensure that it's not just about physical attraction. Let's make sure it's about honor to the Lord first. Amazing. Amazing. Something that would hard to fly today, but um, just amazing to hear. Chapter 6. Give ye heed to the bishop, that God also may give heed to you. My soul be for theirs that are submissive to the bishop, to the presbyters, and to the deacons. And may my portion be along with them in God. Labor together with one another. Strive in company together. Run together. Suffer together. Sleep together. Await together. As the stewards and associates and servants of God. Please ye him under whom ye fight, and from whom ye receive your wages. Let none of you be found a deserter. Let your baptism endure as your arms, your faith as your helmet, your love as your spear, your patience as a complete panoply. Let your works be the charge assigned to you, that ye may receive a worthy recompense. Be long-suffering, therefore, with one another in meekness, as God is towards you. May I have joy of you forever. <laughs> uh, multiple things to point out here. One is just, again, we have the entirety of the church governance expressed here. We have their goal, this uh, this type of fellowship wherein which we run side by side, we labor together, we suffer together. Um, every aspect of our lives with regards to uh, the, the spiritual and physical actions of our lives are meant to be held together. We are meant to have a say and a word in each other's lives um, and that our solidity does not just come Notice he doesn't have anything with regards to our position in this world. He just has us as sufferers together, co-sufferers. I think that's awesome. Hence the concept of being long-suffering, uh, therefore with one another, in meekness as God is towards you. Question here again, Ken. So do we think that Polycarp was in a difficult place in particular when Ignatius wrote to him? No, by, by all counts... Um, this is more like a mentor-mentee relationship. Um, Polycarp was able to actually come and see him uh, when he was passing through. Now, whether he was in a rough spot as far as for the church was concerned, it doesn't really seem from the letter that we're dealing with massive issues. Um, perhaps there was just despondency. Polycarp was actually also quite a young guy to be a bishop of, of a city like that, and Smyrna was not a small place. Uh, so this this more has the feeling of, at least as far as I can tell, Paul uh, writing to Timothy, right? Timothy, very young son in the faith, uh, and people were despising him for his age. Here, it seems that there's kind of a similar thing, an older mentor writing to a younger bishop uh, and encouraging him to uh, the lessons that he's learned over the years, especially as, as Ignatius is going to his death, Um yeah, so that that's the that's the feel I get from this. We don't know of anything specifically that uh, you know Polycarp was dealing with that was not kind of par for the course of of the role of a bishop. As he finishes off this, I'm just going to give you my favorite quotes from chapters seven and eight, rather than read them to you uh, in their entirety. 
Uh, it basically, it was a special request for a messenger to be sent to Antioch uh, and an encouragement for the bishop in difficult times. I like to hear this encouragement, and I kind of wanted to f uh, finish off on it. Um, Ignatius says to Polycarp, he says, A Christian has not power over himself, but must always be ready for the service of God. Now this work is both God's and yours, when ye shall have completed it to his glory. For I trust that through grace ye are prepared for every good work pertaining to God. Fare ye well in the Lord. I love the way he puts this. Because, again, we are not looking at the Christian life as something that we are able to actually, um, we are actually capable of uh, containing the work of the Christian in and of ourselves. That would be a denial of the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, that uh, that what is physically wrought in us is wrought by the Spirit of God. Uh, Ken, you ask a follow-up question. You say, that seems more in keeping with the flavor of the other letters. Yeah, indeed. Um, there, there were, there's not a whole lot of, you know, massive corrections, but a lot of them are just encouragements along the way. You're right. You're right. Um, right. So what do we learn from this letter, uh, from, uh, from Ignatius to Polycarp, right? Uh, one that Christian leaders ought to be encouraged insofar as they are faithful. Uh, and this, this, I want to encourage, uh, Christians. This, this goes not only to church leaders, this goes to all Christians, um, if, if things are going haywire in your life, you have sufferings and so forth and things like this. Um, we live in a society, at least where I live, uh, I live in a society that looks at that as, um, you know, something might just be off. If you were following the Lord well, then all things should be going well. And we kind of tend to grade ourselves by our situation if we are suffering, maybe maybe we did something wrong. But Ignatius will actually uh, remind us that the way that this works is that suffering, when it is afforded to us, should be passed through with gratitude. Right? It should be passed through because we are co-sufferers with Christ. This is who we are. It shouldn't surprise us. Peter writes the same way. Paul writes the same way. In fact, all the scriptures bear this out. Secondly, what do we learn from this is don't be a troublesome Christian. For the sake of your pastors that are faithful, for the sake of your uh, elders that are faithful, don't be meddlesome and troublesome and just focusing on disputable matters. There are far more bigger fights going on. There, there is much more help that can be found amongst faithful church leaders. Or to take, if you want to only take the encouragements of scripture, don't make your church leaders serve you with tears. That's not going to be beneficial for you or for them. Thirdly, what do we learn from this? That the, it is that the incarnation teaches us the significance of our sufferings. They are not meaningless. And if there's anything that I can drill into the uh, minds of Christians in the 21st century, it is this wisdom that comes to us from the first and second century. And that is that Christ entering into his body as one of us, Christ being truly man and truly God, teaches us that our sufferings have significance, eternal significance. They're not just meaningful to us. God has purpose in them and they will not just die with us. They will surely be a part of who we are. 
Uh, it is an incredible thing that God gifts them to us. And it's something that I encourage all Christians to consider, thanking God for their sufferings while they are going through them. Number four, Christians have obligations to each other. We have obligations to each other to uphold one another, to suffer alongside with one another, to be patient with one another, to bear one of those burdens. The way you treat other Christians says a whole lot about what you think God treats you like. It says a lot. If we are not patient with one another, if we are not long-suffering with one another, what does that tell us about what we think about God to us? And the final admonition, the final encouragement, serve the Lord. It is worth it. Ignatius of Antioch, wisdom from 1900 years ago. Remarkable stuff. Uh, something that I'm glad we got to sit down to at a later date. We will certainly return and read um, his letter to the Romans. It is just amazing. The story of Ignatius does end in Rome whether it is in the Circus Maximus or it is in the Colosseum, as told to us by John Chrysostom several centuries later. Uh, from all accounts, he was put to death by being uh, eaten by wild animals, most likely lions. And he looked forward to that. And in his letter to the Romans ahead of time, he begged them not to save him from it. It was a gift that God was giving him. And he desired, and he even connected that to the Eucharistic feast as well. You can hear the very um, deep imagery he uses uh, to express those things. I'll just share with you. He talks about his bones being ground between the teeth of the wild animals becoming flour so that it could be baked into a loaf, uh, a perfect loaf. Uh, remarkable references uh, and something that will come back and return to Ignatius of Antioch at some point in the future. Um, I, for one, I am grateful for his wisdom. I'm grateful it was preserved and I'm grateful to have gone through with it uh, with you all. Uh, Lord's blessings to you. I hope it is of encouragement and of help. Um, and uh, I do pray that God uh, continue to grow us all up in the image of Christ and use one another for that end. Lord's blessings with you all.